Parents, I want to start off this morning by asking you a question. I think I already know the answer. Grandparents, this applies to you too. You ever been out with your kiddos or your grandkids in public and they're acting up, throwing a fit, fighting with their brother or sister, pulling things off the shelves and you've told them more than a few times to, to stop and, and how many of you have ever said this? How old are you? Anybody ever said that or heard that before? And they will say 8, 10, 15, 20, right? And then you respond with what? Yeah, act like it. Then act like it. We've heard that before, right? At times, the writers of Scripture will reason in this way when they're dealing with professing Christians who are acting immature spiritually. They will make a similar point. They will say things like, though you say you love God, though you claim to be a follower of Jesus and numbered among God's people, you're not acting like it. In light of what Christ has done for you, in light of who you are in Him, you should be this way, but instead, you're that way. That was the problem with the group of Jews the writer of Hebrews was writing to. Though they claimed to be followers of Jesus and were numbered among God's people, they were not acting like it. Jesus had taken a a back seat in their spiritual lives. Many of them were struggling with complacency, and many were even considering embracing other belief systems and bringing that in to their Christian faith. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to them to make the point, he's writing this book to them to make the point that there is nothing missing if we have Jesus. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater than any and everything else. If you have him, you have everything you could possibly need. And we have seen already in the first chapter of Hebrews that the author is making this point by getting theological. He gets theological with them about who Jesus is. He writes about how Jesus is God's greatest revelation. And then last week in the passage we looked at as we ended chapter 1, we learned that Jesus is greater than angels. He writes about how Jesus is God. He is eternal, unchanging, righteous, just, the creator of all things, the one who is holding all things together by the word of his power, who has all authority. And the reason, again, he takes time to teach his readers all of these things about Jesus is so that they would begin to see Jesus as supreme over everything and would live like it. They were not living as if Jesus was supreme. So the author of Hebrews teaches about how Jesus is supreme and shows them that he is so that they would know that he is and believe that he is and live accordingly. That's what he's doing. Well, the author is going to continue with this emphasis in our text for today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 2. Hebrews chapter 2, he's going to be explaining to his audience why they do not have a correct view of Jesus. In chapter 1, he has talked a great deal about the fact that they should have a correct view of Jesus, and now he's going to talk about why they do not, which I want to stop there for a minute and show you that the author of Hebrews knows his audience, right? The writers in Scripture, they know their audience. To minister to people, you've got to get where they are. 
you gotta, you got to come to know them, to know where to meet them, to minister to them. The author of Hebrews does. And, and this is good for us, what he says to the, to the Jewish Christians in Hebrews, because as we have said already, we have a tendency to have a low view of Jesus. Though some of you would argue with me on that, it shows in the way some of you live. Though you may say Jesus is supreme, oftentimes we don't live like it. And here's why, according to Hebrews 2. The first reason is because oftentimes we don't pay attention to the truths about Christ from God's Word. We don't pay attention to the truths about Christ from God's Word. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, here we find one of the first of many warning passages in the book of Hebrews. We're going to see these all throughout Hebrews. We're going to spend more time on these as we continue on. But I want you to notice here that the author of Hebrews is giving his audience a warning. He says, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Now, what have they heard? Well, these truths about Jesus, right? In chapter 1, the fact that he is God's greatest revelation, the fact that he is greater than angels, the fact that he is, he is God, he is the creator and sustainer of all that is, the fact that he is unchanging and eternal and has all authority, he says we must pay attention, close attention to those truths about Christ. We need to know them, we need to believe in them, we need to live accordingly lest we drift away. Now, when he says drift away, is the author implying here that a true believer can turn away from the faith altogether and lose his or her salvation? Is that what he's saying? No, that flies in the face of the many other teachings in Scripture that clearly teach that Christians are secure. If you've been made right with God by faith alone, in Christ alone, if you've been forgiven of sin, made right with, with Jesus by trusting in his person and work, if you've been converted, if you've been changed from the inside out, you are secure. But God also teaches in his word that his people endure. Not only are they secure, they endure, they persevere. They keep trusting, they keep following hard after Jesus. Do they mess up? Of course, but they're messed up about messing up and confess it and move on. God's word clearly teaches that. Jesus said, no one can snatch true believers out of my hand, out of my father's hand, but he also said, he who believes till the end will be saved. God's people are secure, God's people endure. That's why the author of Hebrews is giving these warning passages here. They're written so that his readers might pause and so that we might pause and examine our lives. That's the intent here. Notice he says, we must. If we are true followers of Christ, we must pay close attention to these truths. We have heard about Christ's supremacy, lest we drift. Now, They've already drifted a bit, right? That's the reason he's writing this. And believers, we can and do drift. But by God's grace, through the power of his spirit, through the preaching and teaching and study of his word, with the help of, of his faithful, the church, we get back on track living for God. That's why the author of Hebrews is writing this book, by the way. 
for this reason, so that by God's grace, they may, they may see what's amiss in their life and get back on track and, and, and busy living for him. I want you to notice something else here. The phrase drift away is not used of someone who knowingly rejects and turns away from Christ. It's very, very important that you understand that. This phrase refers to someone who is drifting and does not know they're drifting. How many of y'all like to go to the beach? Anybody? How many of you like to get out into the ocean and swim out in the ocean? Anybody? Leslie doesn't really, she's not crazy about that. I love to do it. And for those of y'all that do, who like to get out in the water, you'll, you'll notice that when the water's rough, it's very, very easy to drift, isn't it? In fact, you got to fight to stay where you got in. If you just let yourself go and forget about it and stop fighting, before you know it, you're 50 yards down from where you got in. Same is true spiritually. When we neglect time spent in God's word and in prayer, when we do not pay close attention to the truths about God and his gospel and his word, it's very, very easy, very likely that you're going to drift. We must be disciplined, Paul says. For the purpose of godliness, 1 Timothy 4, 7. We must continue to read God's word and study God's word and pray God's word and share God's word and do God's word so that we do not drift. Notice the author of Hebrews gives us several reasons why we should guard against drifting. Check these out. They're in your notes there. One, there are consequences for those who drift. That's the first reason. There are consequences for those who drift. Look at verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This is another warning the writer is giving here. Now again, I, I believe that this writer is writing to believers. Some question that, but notice the word we used here. If he was not writing to believers, then we would have to say that the writer of Hebrews was not a believer because he includes himself. Do you see that? It says we. He's writing to believers whom I believe heed his teaching, but this also applies, this passage applies to those just inquiring about Christianity. Maybe that's where you are this morning. You're just here and you're checking this thing out, or maybe you were drugged here against your will. Hopefully not. But what he's saying here is this. Here's what he's saying. Remember, the author is writing to a Jewish people who are very knowledgeable of the Old Testament, which is why he quotes Old Testament scripture throughout the book of Hebrews to make the point that Jesus is supreme. And here he is appealing once again to what they know. And he says in verse 2, when God gave us revelation through angelic messengers. So now you've got some context for chapter 1. You know why they, they, they held angels in such high regard? They're God's messengers, okay? They were just holding them too high and, and their view of Christ was too low. But, but angels are, are God's messengers. And he says, you remember how their message, these angelic messengers proved to be reliable? And remember the consequences that came through not listening to and obeying their message? Remember how he says every transgression, every act of disobedience received a just retribution? In other words... He says, do you remember how there were severe consequences 
that came as a result of not listening to God's word through his angelic messengers. He says all that to make the point, if that's the case with angelic messengers, how much more will that be the case if we reject God's greatest revelation, his son? How much more so? He is giving this warning here, I believe, to believers so that they will examine their lives and make sure they're not neglecting such a great salvation. But this is a great word for those of you here this morning who are not trusting in Christ, who are just maybe checking this thing out. Maybe that's where some of you are today. You're here. You're not trusting in Christ. You've been hesitant up until this point. If this is you, I urge you to not turn away from the person and work of Jesus, but trust in him alone for your salvation. Do not neglect such a great salvation because those who do will not escape God's just retribution. Those who turn away, those who reject Christ are set against God in their sin and have his wrath set against them. And their future is judgment if they do not turn. Not my words, God's words. It's God's words. So that's the first motivation for why we should guard against tuning out truth and drifting spiritually because there are consequences for those who drift. Here's the second motivation for why we should guard against drifting. It's because the gospel message we profess is reliable. It's a reliable message. That's the second reason why we should not tune out these truths about Christ, why we should guard against drifting spiritually. Look at the end of verse 3. It, he says. Now, what is it? Well, he's talking about what he just was talking about, this great salvation. This gospel message was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Now, notice here that this great message of salvation that was accomplished by Christ was declared first by Christ. He not only accomplished it, he declared it. Remember we talked about this at the beginning of the book of Acts? After Jesus accomplished the great work at Calvary, and after he, he rose from the dead three days later, he spends a great deal of time before his ascension teaching his disciples about the work that he just accomplished. So before commissioning them, Christ teaches them about this great work that he accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. This is a reliable message because not only was the work in this message accomplished by the Lord Jesus, but it was taught by him. It was declared by him first. This great work was accomplished by the Lord and it was declared by the Lord. He died, he was raised, and he appeared to hundreds of people over an extended period of time, and he shared this message to them. And the author of Hebrews then says, those who were there who saw the risen Christ took that message to others. He says, they took that message to us. And a lot of people, self-included, believe that this verse of Scripture proves the author of Hebrews is not Paul. Because he says, we received the message of salvation from eyewitnesses of Jesus. Paul wouldn't have said that, would he? In fact, he said the opposite. Look at the verse of Scripture up here. This is Galatians 1, 11 through 12, up on the screen. He says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
So the writer of Hebrews is saying, the eyewitnesses brought the message to us. Paul says, I received it from no man. I received it from Jesus, right? So, so not Paul. Paul didn't author Hebrews. That's just a, a side note, but I needed to make that point. The main point, let's come back to the main point again of this verse of scripture is that this message of salvation, this gospel message is a reliable message. It's a message that can be trusted. You can rely upon this message, folks. Don't tune it out. Don't drift from it. It is the message from Christ about Christ, about what he came to earth to do, the salvation he came to accomplish. He taught it to his apostles. They took that message out from there, shared it with others. It was written down for us believers so that we would read it and believe it and place our trust in it and share it with others. So the second reason we should not neglect who Jesus is and the work he came to do is because this gospel message about his person and work is a reliable message. It was accomplished by him and declared first by him. The third reason why we should not tune out truth and should guard against drifting spiritually is because the message, the gospel message we have received, it has been confirmed through miracles. It has been confirmed through miracles. Look, look at verse 4. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, at this time, this is 30 or so years after uh, the time of Jesus when this book was written, the book of Hebrews at this time, there were probably few, if any, recipients of this letter who had seen Jesus face to face and had heard him preach. He even says, we received it from other people. The ones they had heard from were eyewitnesses of Jesus at this time. They listened to those who had been eyewitnesses to Jesus, those who had been commissioned by Christ, who had been witnesses of his person and work. And when these messengers went out to share this message, at times, God would work great miracles in and through them. And remember, we talked about this all throughout the book of Acts. These miracles that these apostles and followers of Jesus performed were signs of confirmation from God. God, by performing miracles through these people, he was shining light on his messenger and shining light on his message as well. Remember, Jesus performed miracles to do this as well. He performed miracles to illustrate who he was and what he came to do, but he also performed miracles. Jesus performed miracles so that those listening would know that he was God's promised Messiah, his man, his forever king. Listen to John 10, 38. Jesus says, though you do not believe me, believe the works. Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Jesus says, believe the works. So those in Jesus' day saw the miracles he performed directly and they served as signs of confirmation that he was the Christ. And God also performed great works through his apostles for this reason. And the author of Hebrews here, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, he's appealing to that. He's saying they had received Christ's message from those eyewitness, miracle-working apostles. Therefore, he says, this message that we receive from them is legitimate. They were eyewitnesses. They were, com they were commissioned directly by Christ. And when they went out, they shared his message. And God even performed miracles through them. Therefore, believe them. Believe their message. 
Listen to their message. Don't stray from it. And believers, we have their account today, don't we? We have God's word in our language in a preferred translation, right? God's gone to great lengths, worked through people throughout history to get his word to us, and we have it today. We have an account of Jesus' life, his teachings, the miracles that he performed, and the miracles and message of his apostles in his word. This gospel message that we have is true and trustworthy and reliable and we should read it and study it and trust in it and not stray from it and share it with others and apply it to our lives maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling in this area in your walk with christ you're here and if you're being honest you're not spending time in his word as you should and you're tuned out in places like this and you're drifting spiritually if i'm speaking to you my prayer for you today is that god would do a great work in your heart and life and you would respond to that work and wake up again and begin listening again and you would set aside time now today if you have not already to spend time communing with god in his word and that you would get back on track and back in the race and begin swimming upstream against the tide of this world and that you would be disciplined to read God's word and study God's word and pray God's word and trust God's word and share God's word and apply God's word to your life so that's one reason there the author gives for why we don't believe and live as if Jesus is supreme it's because we don't pay attention to the truths about christ from god's word here's the second reason second reason we don't believe and and live as if jesus is supreme is because we don't currently see christ ruling over everything verse five for it was not to angels that god subjected the world to come of which we are speaking now notice here once again the author picks up once again, with the subject we talked about at the end of chapter 1, the subject of Jesus and angels. And notice here, he reminds his reader, once again, Jesus is superior to angels. And the reason why is because he has supreme authority. The angels don't have the kind of authority that Jesus has. The author of Hebrews says, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Now, what does he mean when he says the world to come a lot is lost in translation here it helps to have a knowledge of a, a bit of a knowledge of old testament judaism here that phrase is a common phrase a common jewish phrase that refers to the future age the end of the age the end of time the, the time when all of god's purposes in salvation will be Fulfilled. That's what that phrase, the world to come, is referring to. In the Old Testament, God spoke through prophets about how he was going to set up a supreme kingdom, his supreme kingdom on earth through his promised Messiah. And in the New Testament, we learn that Jesus is God's man, his Messiah, the king of God's kingdom. And he is the one who's going to set everything right, not angels Jesus. Jesus is going to do this work. He is the one who's going to make right all that we wronged in our sin. He's going to make things right in our lives, believers, and in our world. Now, to understand this great work that Christ came to accomplish and the work he's accomplished, we must first understand that the world is messed up. Can we be honest? 
that the world's messed up. You've got to understand that to understand the work Christ came to do. The world in which we live is not the world God intended when he first created everything. And I think deep down we know that, right? That's why self-help section in any major bookstore, it's the, it's the, it's the biggest section of books, self-help. We know something's broken. Something's, something's not right. When we look at how unruly our world is, we know things are not right. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And most everybody I've met, they long for things to be made right. And God tells us this is true in his word, and he tells us why. We learn in the beginning that man had a very good beginning, didn't he? He did. When God first made man, he, he made him in his image, and he gave man dominion over the earth, authority over this world. God told man to rule the earth and to exercise dominion over it, Genesis 1.28. And the author of, of Hebrews reminds us of this dominion given to man, and he does so by quoting the Old Testament once again. He's going to quote it again. He's going to quote Psalm 8. Look at it. Verses 6 through 8 of, of Hebrews 2. He says, it has been testified somewhere. I love that. I believe that's intentional. I mean, everyone knew that David wrote Psalm 8. It's one of his most familiar psalms. We, we know that David wrote Psalm 8. Many of you do. But he says, it's been testified somewhere. Why does he say that? Well, I believe he didn't want the focus to be on David and his greatness because he's focusing on Christ and his supremacy, which is why he put it in that way. I love it. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? Verse 7. You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. He's quoting Psalm 8 here. It's a psalm of David. And he is writing about man's exalted position in the universe. And some commentators argue that though this applies to men, we can also make application here for Jesus. And they argue over whether you should or shouldn't. I don't believe you should because the passage to come, he's going to take Psalm 8 and apply to Christ. I think he's just talking to man here. And he, he says, God is mindful of man. He's reminding us of this passage. He's mindful of man. He has given him a lofty earthly position. He has crowned him with glory and honor. He has put all things under his feet. But something happened. Look at verse 8. End of verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. I believe that's to man. Though we've been given great authority, well, though we've been created in God's image and given authority over his world, it doesn't seem as if we have this kind of authority today. Let's just be honest, right? We're reminded of this every day. Farmers need rain for their crops and a drought comes. Someone's attacked by a wild animal. A, a, a home is destroyed by a natural disaster. People get cancer. They get treated for it and they still die. Things are not right. We don't currently see everything subject to man. What happened? Well, the fall happened. Though we are created in God's image, set apart from the rest of his creation, given authority over God's created world, man fell. And when man sinned, that rule was lost. 
And as a result of that fall, creation became very unruly, right? We were created to rule over creation, but as a result of the fall, creation became very unruly. And we see it all the time today. And that's one of the reasons Jesus came. Did you know that? Jesus came, get this, to regain that dominion that we lost at the fall. Look at verse 9. Notice how the author of Hebrews applies David's words in Psalm 8 to the man, Christ Jesus. He says, But we see him for a little while, who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. He became a man, right? Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That, that dominion that was lost by man's sin was won back, get this, by Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Christ regained that authority. He regained that supremacy for man by becoming a man and laying his life down for us. Jesus said that, did he not? In Matthew 28, after his resurrection, before his ascension, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He has all authority in heaven and on earth over creation and created beings, over heaven and heavenly beings. All means all. He has all authority. And one day, King Jesus is going to return and things are going to be set completely right for good in the spiritual realm and in the physical realm. We're told in Scripture that creation groans. For that day and we're to groan we're to groan for that day as well the problem for us today is that at times though we know christ has all authority it's tough for us to see christ authority and supremacy over all things because the world in which we live is still very much broken can we be honest it's broken we still live in a broken and fallen, sin-stained world. Christ has not yet returned. We have yet to see him for who he truly is, but we know that he has accomplished this great work through God's word. And the message of Scripture is that he is returning. And when he does, and when we see him as he is, as the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, every knee is going to bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord, and he's going to make everything right. That's what he's coming to do. It's what he's already done. The work's already in progress. But the issue with the Hebrews in this day and with us today is that at times we don't view Christ as being supreme because we, we, we have trouble seeing his supremacy and our supremacy, that's been, that's been lost. Our authority has been lost in, in this world. So we don't view Christ as being supreme. We don't live accordingly. We don't pay attention to the truths about Jesus from God's word. We don't currently think of Christ as ruling over everything. And third and finally, we don't view Christ's suffering as we should. We don't view Christ's suffering as we should. Look at verse 9 again and verse 10. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It's getting good. Get ready. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. One of the reasons I think many today 
don't view Christ as being supreme at all because they just view him simply as a, as a man who was weak and, and suffered throughout his life and, and suffered at the cross. They view it as being tragic. He suffered throughout his life just like we suffer. He was rejected and opposed by his own people and ultimately put to death by them. Some hear that and they completely reject that Christ is supreme in any way because he was just like us. He was weak. He suffered and died. Some argue, how can Christ be supreme if he was like us and suffered and died a painful death on a shameful cross? Here's the answer. Notice first the author of Hebrews acknowledges what many theologians refer to as the humiliation of Christ. Christ did humble himself. Paul said in Philippians 2 that he emptied himself by becoming one of us. The writer of Hebrews says, for a little while he was made lower than the angels, though he created angels. He was David's Lord, but he became his son. Why? For us. For us, for you and for me. He emptied himself. He humbled himself by becoming one of us and died in our place so that we through him could be brought to glory. And all of this, Christ's work at Calvary, his suffering and death, it brought honor and glory to the Father. Do you realize that? This great work brought honor and glory to God. We are told that the suffering and death of King Jesus was an acceptable act before God. We're told that Jesus is crowned by God with glory and honor because of his death. At Calvary, Jesus did what no other person could ever do. He tasted death for everyone so that by God's grace, many could be brought to glory. That's the gospel right there. We're told in verse 10 that Jesus is the founder of Salvation. God is able to bring many sons to glory through Jesus' accomplished work at, at Calvary. Though many think his suffering is a sign of his weakness, not in Jesus' case. In Jesus' case, suffering is a sign of his supremacy. We're told that Jesus is made perfect through suffering. Now, that's not to say Jesus wasn't perfect before he went to the cross. He was. But what he's saying here is he's making the point that after living the perfect life in our place, on our behalf, the life Christ lived for us is made complete by him dying as a perfect sacrifice for sin so that we, through him, through faith alone and him alone, could be forgiven of sin and made right with God. So when we come to understand what Jesus accomplished at Calvary. We learn that the suffering and the death he endured was what the Father sent him to do. You realize that? It's why Jesus came. It wasn't a sign of him being weak. It was a sign of him being supreme. Jesus, the King of glory, did what no other king could ever do or would ever do. He stepped off of his throne out of eternity and into history, into the world that he created. And he became one of us. He took on flesh and blood. He moved into the neighborhood. He tabernacled among us. And he became a lowly one of us at that. And he lived the perfect life for us. And he tasted death for everyone so that he might bring many to glory. That's your truth for the week, by the way, in your study guide. Focus on that. Learn that. 
internalize that. Author and Bible scholar John Stevenson in his commentary on Hebrews says this. Look at this up on the screen. It's a great quote. He says, Jesus came to die. When we think of the death of Christ, we picture the blood-stained cross and the tortured mass of quivering flesh that hung naked upon it. We hear the jeers and taunts of those who were the, the enemies of the Lord, and we hear the rattle of the soldier's dice as the guards gamble over the robe of Jesus. This is a picture of suffering and of death, but we must never think of that picture as a picture of weakness or as a picture of failure or as a picture of defeat it was not a defeat but a glorious victory it is in the midst of that suffering of death that we see jesus crowned with glory and honor great quote jesus humbled himself to the point of death he died he died for you and for me but he did not suffer defeat he was victorious through his death our sin debt was paid. God placed our sins on Christ. Death's stinger was plunged into Jesus and it stayed there so that we who are trusting in him might not have to endure that sting of death. And through our faith alone in Christ alone, through his person and work, we can be forgiven of sin. We can receive his righteousness by God's grace alone, through our faith alone, in Christ alone. Are you sharing in this victory? Have you experienced this victory today? Have you turned from your sin? Have you placed your, your faith alone in Christ alone? If not, now's the time, right now, today. Give your life up and over to King Jesus. Let's pray.